0: Hello and welcome to Still a Nurse podcast. I am your host Tristan, a registered nurse, wife, and mother. Join me as I set out to discover everything the nursing profession has to offer. Through conversations with other nurses, we will take an insider's look at common nursing positions and explore alternative career paths few know about we'll discuss the highs and lows of nursing how to love your work and prevent burnout career advancement strategies relevant current events continuing education to improve your skills and along the way we'll hear amazing stories that are heartbreaking inspirational or hilarious let's have some fun Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Still a Nurse Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. And with me, I have an old professor of mine, not that she's old, but that it's been a while since I've been in school. This is Fran. Thank you so much for joining us, Fran, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to hear from you.
0: All right. So why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and why you ended up in nursing?
1: Yeah. So, um, Growing up, I just had a great love for bodies. My mother, we call her the witch doctor, and she loved to do holistic things. And honestly, I never stepped foot inside of a medical practice until I was 18 years old and ready to head off to college. So she doctored all of us. I came from a very big family, and um, I was really impressed with the things that she was able to do with um, all kinds of holistic approaches. So that kind of generally got me interested in uh, medicine and then, uh, just other experiences over time. I realized I loved people and, uh, it was a good fit.
0: That's really neat. So how was it, or how did you feel about transitioning from your mom's more holistic kind of side of things and avoiding doctor's offices to then going into more traditional medicine with all the doctor's offices? Was that kind of a hard thing for you to get through or was it just, this is natural. This is what feels right to me. Oh,
1: that's a great question. Um, I think there's value in both, and I think um, taking the middle road and choosing the best of both worlds is actually a really great approach. So um, I'm not exclusively one direction or the other, and um, I've been interested over the last probably 15 years to see how much medicine is turning to more holistic integration as well. So um, I love that we can tie the best of both worlds, and then really, isn't it all about the better health of individuals. So however that looks, I think we need to get there as a nation and as individuals.
0: I love that you brought up that they're kind of coming together a little bit, those two different uh, viewpoints of medicine, because I kind of felt that way, excuse me, as well, that they're starting to uh, break down some barriers between those. But other nurses I've spoken with, they're like, oh, no way. So um, how have you seen those those two schools of thought coming together a little bit, just to kind of give some examples, if you have any.
1: Uh, Well, I should have done a little research about that prior to chatting with you. Um, I have heard that Yale has opened an integrative medical clinic right alongside their medicine clinics. So um, doctors are literally turning to holistic practices or referring people They'll try what they can, and they will early on reach out to the integrative clinic to say, "What what do you have that might also help this individual?" So, that's a kind of formalization that I have been hearing about. I would like to say there's also one in Boston, but I can't verify that for sure. Yeah. Uh, every time I hear about something that's happening, I'm like, "Yay! Let's let's move that direction, right? Let's let's do what we can to make everybody more healthy."
0: I think that's awesome. That's a really cool. Sounding clinic. I'd not heard of that before, but I I have a cousin who just is working through DO school and everything, and he's mm-hmm. mentioned how there's a little bit more holistic stuff coming into his schooling as well, which I thought was pretty cool. So that's really neat to hear. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about your early nursing, like uh, just a brief where you went to school and kind of your first job, just so we kind of get the start of your nursing journey?
1: Yeah. So. I came to nursing a little bit later. I, uh, in college, I did my first degree in zoology, which had a human focus to it. And honestly, I was thinking about medical school and then life kind of happened. And, um, I realized a couple of years into marriage that, 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 that probably was something I could have pursued and been very happy with earlier. My husband was in the military, and uh, we moved about every two years. And so my ability to go to school kind of shrank. So I thought if I want to do anything, I'll never be able to get to medical school at this point. So I was considering maybe when all of my kids go back to school, I will, or when my kids are in school, then I'll go back to school and do medical school. So in the meantime, I thought, what's something that's close that would kind of prepare me for that? So I was able to do a two-year associate program when we were living in Virginia and uh, it was at a great little place called Piedmont Virginia Community College and I had amazing teachers who really influenced me and helped me kind of see a, a side of nursing that I never thought I would enjoy and my very first job was at my preceptorship location so it was it was at a medical surgical GI floor and Uh, We saw things like post-surgical transplants, so livers and kidneys, and then bariatric surgeries. And um, that really got my feet wet for a lot of surgical things that I wouldn't have done if I hadn't had those experiences. I really, really coming out of nursing school wanted to be in the emergency room. That was my great love. And at the time, they were not hiring any new grads right into the ER. So this was a great fit. I felt comfortable coming on my preceptorship. I already knew the floor. They loved me. I loved them. And it was really awesome for the first year. And then it was time for my husband to move with the military and off we went. So um, from there, I did a year of home health. And, and that was because he ended up deploying and I wanted to be around for my kids. So I kind of made it work for me. And then I ended up at, uh, after a year, we moved again. And I ended up on a step-down unit, which had tele and respiratory. So that, again, was another kind of baby step forward to grow my nursing capabilities. We were there for another year, and then we moved to Washington, D.C., and I got hired at a level one trauma center working in the emergency room. So it kind of took me three years to arrive at the place where I thought I wanted to be, and I loved it. So uh, that became my home and I worked there for about five years before we moved again. So that's kind of the the quick down and dirty to at least my nursing career.
0: Well, that's awesome. Uh, But in those, that quick rundown, that's four moves. That's a lot of moving. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously nursing moves well where you go. Was it hard though to like transfer license or anything or was it just... An annoying part of the process, just for those who are kind of looking for something that is flexible and is able to move with them wherever they may be
1: taken. Yeah. So I'm a super loyal person. And if I had never moved, I never would have left that first job because I felt like I was such a pivotal part of what was going on there. And and I knew I was giving great care. So if I hadn't been forced by external reasons to move, I wouldn't have experienced those other things. So um, Moving to a new state, all of those were state-to-state moves. So I was able to get in under the interstate compact. And it honestly was a fairly easy process. Once you pass the NCLEX, your license, as long as you're moving to an interstate compact state, is very easy to transition. It's like an extra, I don't know, $90 or $120. So um, not a big deal. But I think what was hard for me was transitioning into different nursing cultures. Because every unit, every floor, every location kind of has its own, its own life. And so for me, getting in there and getting to know new people and as a new nurse, coming to realize who can I trust? You know, when I have a question, I want to be able to go and get a reliable answer from individuals. And so um, also becoming a resource for people as someone that they could trust. So building those relationships as nurses, um, it's important for the safety of our patients. And it's also important for our own mental health while we're working, so that we feel like we have people we can trust uh, to turn to as well. So those, those were a few of the challenges, but I will say that nurses are amazing people in general. And I always found great managers that I could turn to if I had a question, I wish I had learned to rely earlier on my charge nurses. When I was a new nurse, I always felt like I had to do it all myself and make sure I knew everything all myself. And I didn't realize what a valuable asset charge nurses are to all nurses that are working during that timeframe. So I would give that as a piece of advice to a new nurse starting out. And, and then um, just coming to, um, coming to know like, who are the doctors I call? Um, what are the avenues? I, one of the hospitals I worked at, there were three different ways to contact providers and I could never figure out, is it the internal paging system? Is it a cell phone call? Is it, uh, uh, I don't know the internal, like the Bocera or whatever the, the brand of communication tool, how did they want to be called? It it always was mind boggling to me how many different ways doctors wanted to be reached. And generally nurses don't have time to sort that information out. So the unit secretary became a great resource too, to be like, I need this doctor. I need them in the next five minutes. Can you, can you help me find out how to contact them?
0: Those are all great bits of information and a great perspective on someone who's had to do so many areas of nursing within the first few years. Um, but I love that it all built up to get you to where you were hoping to get to. I think that's a really encouraging and great thing. And I'm pleased that you actually did like the ER. (laughs) I hear so many stories of like, I thought I'd love this and I hated it.
1: (laughs) Well, I will tell you that the combination of medical surgical nursing, a really good basis in that. I'm a strong proponent now for students of just doing medical surgical nursing for the first year, or two years, and then transitioning out to whatever specialty you want. So if I had my way in education, that's exactly what we would do. But um, I'm only one person and one voice. And I guess because it worked for me and I see what kind of growth I had, that's why I hold to that. So stepping from a medical surgical background and then into the ER, when I started that position after having been a nurse in three different areas in three years, I started my ER trauma job with three other brand new nurses who'd come right out of school. Their learning curve was about a... 95 degree angle it was just it was unreal the things that they had to learn and because I had all of that background my learning was about a 35 degree angle (laughs) so I was grateful for all of that preparation I had because I know I was better stronger wiser because I'd seen so many other things on a medical surgical setting than they had so I do recommend that
0: highly Absolutely. So, take notes, new nurses or those in nursing school. Maybe med surge is not a bad idea. (laughs) I remember thinking, like, everyone does med surge afterwards. I don't do something different, but um, I, uh, through talking with many nurses now, I definitely see the value in it and think, no, that would have been good actually. Um. So, from ER, where did you end up going from there? Because I know you eventually became an instructor because you were at the university I went to. So how on earth did you get from ER to instructor? So
1: um, I think in general, the older you get in nursing, the older your body gets. And because I moved so often in my early years, it was always on the night shift. And I realized um, I'm getting older, I'm getting more tired. And what is a natural segue to be able to share what I know with the next generation of nurses I always would volunteer to do precepting and um, education for people wherever I worked, and so I knew that I had a knack for being able to share things with with people. So, uh, luckily, while I was in Washington D.C., there's a fantastic university, and I started working on my master's degree in education while I was there, and was able to finish that education degree. And so, then when I moved to another part of the country, um, it was an easy segue to step into education and then i've since gone on and also got to just finish my phd about a year ago so i would highly suggest to all of you listening whatever wherever you are in nursing never discount what's going to happen in the future um you may end up doing something you never thought you'd do like becoming an educator getting your phd i honestly thought when i started nursing i would be a bedside nurse for my entire career and i have been able to maintain a bedside practice i just uh up until three years ago, I was working bedside and um, in addition to teaching in addition to going to school, which is why something had to go and it was the bedside nursing. But I miss those patients and I love I love that connection that I have with them and I take that with me into other pieces of my life now to be able to still provide the same type of care that I would be giving bedside to my neighbors or my friends or my family.
0: That's great. Um, I was going to say, how on earth did you balance all this? Because even in your master's, you would have had kids working full-time and going to school. Um, you're just a super nurse mom. Oh, woman.
1: I don't know about that, but um, I think when you have a goal, I think then being able to order all the pieces of your life to fit it in. My days were long. Um, I also did not work full-time while I was in school. I worked part-time. But going back to the administration where I was working and saying, hey, I'm starting this new piece. You know, what can you do for me? I don't want to quit my job. What would, this, what would this look like if I went to part-time or even PRN? And they were always willing to work with me, which was really nice. I know it benefited them because I was already trained. I know it benefited me because I was able to get uh, another type of degree in nursing. And I, I appreciate that. So I would encourage all of you that are listening to have those conversations with your managers, your nurse educators, your even higher up if you need to, just to be able to let nursing work for you. We have such a need for nurses, and we have a need for nurses who are willing to grow themselves up to the next level of nursing too. So
0: do it. Fantastic advice. Um, so I'm curious now. Do you have any moments throughout your career that really stand out to you as being pivotal in shaping who you are as a nurse today?
1: Oh, well, I mentioned my mom and honestly, um, that foundation is part of who I am today as a nurse, because I try to, I'm always reading about different holistic practices. I'm also continuing to look into medication side effects. And I try to bring all of that into the classroom. I bring that into my own personal life as a a consulting nurse. Um, I look back on several of my teachers and professors, not just nursing, but all throughout my career and who are those individuals who really have a knack or a a strong desire to touch the hearts of other people and really train them. So um, I continue to learn about best educational practices from within nursing, but also outside of nursing. And there've been a lot of great mentors at UVU, as well as at the University of Utah and George Mason University and Piedmont Valley Community College and even in my high school setting. So um, being the type of educator I wish I could have had or saw is what I try to do for my students as well.
0: Um, I love that philosophy. I think that's great. And I do remember you being one of the most loved professors. So it's working (laughs) from the perspective of a student. So can you share with uh, with us what you're doing in nursing now? You mentioned you just got your PhD recently. So congratulations. That's a huge thing. Um, uh, What are you doing with nursing with that now? And how has that been helpful?
1: Yeah. So um, I am teaching as well as doing some administration and Some of the roles in nursing take those advanced degrees in order to perform administration. So the role I'm currently in does not take an advanced degree to do other than my master's degree. So honestly, my role has not changed with my PhD, but um, I will tell you that that education has really broadened my understanding of so many things within nursing itself, practice um, administration teaching. I feel like I'm stronger as an individual and as a nursing teacher, because I said, I'm willing to do this crazy thing and get a PhD. So I'm prepared to do all kinds of things. So I could uh, step into other nursing leadership roles at other universities. So for instance, I could become a department chair. I could become a dean of something because I have this PhD. I am also well-suited to be able to help out with the accreditation process which all nursing schools have to go through um, at the national level to be able to ensure the education is providing what students need to become licensed, but it's safe that it's the right type of information, that we vet our teachers, that our, our institution supports us. So the accreditation process is vital and it takes understanding that process in order to achieve that for institutions. So I I love helping out with that type of thing. And I feel like I help our department in that way. So um, my dissertation topic, I chose one that was about expanding access for vulnerable populations. And I honed in on the population of those people who are homeless, who also are at the end of life. So I feel like spending that time thinking, researching, reading, and then writing about what I discovered in dealing with the end-of-life care for homeless people has the opportunity to influence other communities who are looking to provide that kind of care for this population who really they've been kind of forgotten their whole lives. They live on the edges of our society. And then when it comes time for them to face the end of life and they are ready to to enter hospice care, ready to die, like what happens to them? So um I feel like I'm ready to do things with that information as well for a particular part of the population who doesn't have a lot of resources. So those are the kinds of things you can do with advanced degrees in nursing.
0: Thank you so much for breaking that down cuz I think that's such um, an enigmatic thing for a lot of people to say what do you do with a phd like, what what does that open up to you and I think that was a great way to explain to people why it could be helpful or why it might be important for them to get that so I appreciate you sharing that insight. Um, so I think that's really cool. You did the homeless, um, end of life care with dissertation. That's really cool. I was a hospice nurse for a while, uh, before, uh, putting nursing to the side for a little bit. And I loved hospice, which surprised me, oh. but I had never once thought about that population of people before. Cause you're right. They are on the fringes and they often are forgotten and I have no idea how you would go about helping those people. So I hope that you are able to kind of find a way to be a voice for those and make something awesome happen. Cause I think you are very capable and it it would just be cool to see what you do. Um, Can
1: I, let me just share a little
0: uh bit more, just,
1: just so I can educate whoever's listening. So uh, there's three pieces that have to be in place in order for people to get hospice and you'll, these will ring true to you as a a former hospice. Mm -hmm. So You have to have a location where care can be provided. So you can't just, you know, you can't take care of somebody who doesn't have home. It's called home hospice for a reason. People get sicker as they get ready to die, and they need a location where care can be provided. And usually, that's a home. You have to be able to pay for it because hospice care isn't just free. It's not just sitting out there and people can just, you know, walk up and say, "I need, I need hospice care now." There are nurses, there are organizations, so it's a it's a paid type of system, even though oftentimes the government pays for it, somebody has to pay for it. So you have to be in a system or you have to have insurance or you have to have access to hospice care through the government in order to do it. And homeless people often don't have that, right? Because they're they generally die by the time they're 50. So they don't have they don't have jobs usually. So they don't have access to health care through insurance companies or even are not signed up for Medicare or Medicaid through the, through their local state. So they have no way to pay for care. So that's a problem. And then there's social networks. So as you know, with hospice care, generally the hospice team partners with family or close friends to be able to provide the day-to-day care. And then the hospice team just kind of swoops in and out, you know, at key times, you know, do you need medication refills? Let me assess you, let me support the family through this process of somebody dying. Let me share information. You know, all those great things that nurses do, but we're not 24-7 with those people. So like, what do people do when they're homeless and they're ready to die? So there are locations throughout the country, not very many, but a few, that actually overcome those three barriers and provide care for homeless people. So they provide a location where care can be provided, usually a home-like environment. So organizations will purchase a home and then renovate it and then put maybe five or six people in the home. And then they'll provide that personalized care for them. And then they'll also get donations from the community or other nonprofit organizations to be able to provide the hospice services, pay the hospice companies to come and take care of them. So knock down all three of those barriers and you have a situation where homeless people can now receive hospice care at the end of life. And in Salt Lake City, we have one of those locations. It's actually bigger than a five or six bed facility. It's one of the largest in our country. And so I actually did my my dissertation research right at this location called the In-Between and um, was able to talk with people who were receiving care and interview the people providing the care. And then um, what I want to do is disseminate that information out further so that other communities who have issues with their homeless population can take care of it. So thanks for letting me get on my soapbox, but it's something that we can all contribute to because this form of care, it's called social model hospice. We're the social, like community members are the social piece of social model hospice. And we help provide that opportunity for people with community members who just say, yeah, I'm interested. I want to help.
0: That's really neat. I had no idea that even existed and uh, how cool to have one here in Utah. So thank you for sharing. That's really interesting.
1: It's new. It's only been around for about six or seven years. So it's okay. we're, we're all coming to know it better. And Obviously, it's such a great resource for communities.
0: Absolutely. No, that's fantastic to know about. Um, So we're starting to run out of our time here. Um, So everyone loves stories. And I was wondering if you might have any good nursing stories you'd like to share, whether they're embarrassing or touching. Um, We just love hearing nursing stories.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have uh, one story from nursing school, and then I have another story I'd like to share that's just kind of a funny, embarrassing story. So. From nursing school, um, there's a particular individual I was taking care of on this GI floor. And um, she kind of became my hallmark story of how we can influence care. So uh, she had, this individual had liver disease, was waiting for a liver transplant, hoping, hoping, hoping for it. But she got sicker and sicker. And every week I'd go to clinicals, I would see her and help take care of her. And she turned all kinds of yellow colors as her liver got worse and worse. And then one day when I showed up, she was gone because she passed away and we didn't get a transplant for her. But in the process, I was able to talk to her and really get to know her. And um, I, I watched her struggle towards the end of life, waiting for that transplant and formed a relationship with her. That has been a piece of my formative nursing influence over the years. So I knew that I made a difference to her literally on that. Uh, face-to-face interpersonal connection as I took care of her for several weeks. And then, of course, was devastated as she passed away. But I, I was grateful for the time that I had with her. And then was able to work with other patients like her as I took that job on the floor at the end, of, uh, as I finished nursing school and started nursing. Um, and now let me tell a, a, an embarrassing story that only nurses can appreciate. And I hope it makes you laugh. So. Uh, there's a piece of female anatomy called labia, and the plural of that is labium. And um, my neighbor had some very lovely purple flowers growing in her garden, and they are called lamium, L-A-M-I-U-M, lamium. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to get these purple flowers, and uh, I thought it would be great ground cover to go in my own yard. So I called around to different nurseries to ask and see if you have any of these particular flowers. and for some reason, in my little brain, I got labium and lamium mixed up. And so I called, <laughs> I called the nursery and asked, and it was a female that I was talking to, and said, do you have any labium? <laughs> <laughs> was about 24 plants. And um, the lady on the other end kind of stuttered and didn't understand. And she eventually said, do you mean the plant lamium? And I'm like, oh, yes, lamium. Well, on the other end of the phone, here's me, and I'm five shades of red. I'm the only one who has realized I've mixed up labium and labium, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
0: I told you first uh,
1: could appreciate that story.
0: No, that's that's great. I do appreciate that. And uh easy mistake to make. They're too closely, <laughs> too close <laughs> sounding. <laughs> All right. Well, Fran, thank you so much. Our time is just about up. So I just wanted to thank you again for joining me. It's been awesome talking to you and hearing your experiences. And I loved hearing what you can possibly do with your PhD. I think that's exciting. And I wish you the best of luck moving forward with that.
1: Thank you so much. And thanks for the invite. Just appreciate it.
0: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Still a Nurse podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for any links mentioned and for the key takeaways from this episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you're still a nurse.